0: Well, good morning again. That was good. That was a good morning of worship. There's a couple of things I want to mention here before we get into our text. There are still, I think, a couple of copies of the book What Happens When We Worship. It's kind of a good companion to our study of Malachi now. If you want to pick one up, they're on the resource table. If we're out and you didn't get one, just let me know. We'll order some more of those. The other thing is that we have... Been wanting to do this for a while and now with Allie in the office, we're actually able to do this kind of stuff. So we have our doctrinal statement in booklet form. So all of these articles that the men have been going through for the exhortation are now uh, collected in this booklet. So pick one of these up. They're on the resource table as well. And for members of Grace especially, this is a good reminder of what we have covenanted together to uphold. When you become a member of Grace Bible Church, we say, are you in agreement? Do you believe what this doctrinal statement says? And it's a way of uniting ourselves around the truths of Scripture. So great reminders, great encouragements. Whether you're a member or not, this is a great opportunity for you to be encouraged through the Scriptures and through these articulations of some of these core doctrines. So I encourage you to pick up one of those uh, on your way out this morning. Well, we are continuing in Malachi. Last week, we started the book and did just a brief overview of what got the people of God to the point that we're going to pick up at here, and we looked at verse 1, which is the superscription, which is identifying who the author is and what his authority is in writing this book, and we saw that it really had nothing to do with Malachi. He was a nobody, except for the fact that he brought the message of the word of the Lord, So the significance of this book, the significance of what's being written and discussed and preached here has not to do with the messenger, but it has to do with the message. And that was the main point that we saw last week as we started. So this morning, we're going to pick up in chapter 1, starting in verse 2. We'll go 2 through 5 this morning. And last week, I had mentioned at one point that the people of God in this particular situation, have done what they are good at doing, which is to forget. And the people had forgotten the demonstrations of God's faithfulness and provision and love to them, and that's the situation that we find ourselves dealing with. In fact, much of Israel's history is permeated by their forgetfulness, and many of the more well-known stories, accounts, blunders, wars, captivities. These things are a result of their forgetfulness, what I call historical amnesia. They don't remember what God has done for them in the past. And as a result of that forgetfulness, and in some cases, willing forgetfulness, they go astray. And they find themselves in all sorts of shenanigans and trouble. So, we find as we start this first chapter of Malachi that the people have once again forgotten. They have forgotten the demonstrations of God's love. They have forgotten the proof of his faithfulness to them. So when God comes to them and he says, I've always loved you, they have the goal to say, How have you loved us? In other words, what have you done for me lately? They've forgotten. They've forgotten what the Lord has done for them over their history. And as we work through our text today, we're going to see that God, rather than striking them dead for their unbelief and their ignorance and their willful disobedience, he is gracious to them and he has a discourse with them. He talks with them through the prophet Malachi, something that was not Deserved, but it is a sign of God's grace. Now, the main illustrative point, the main thing that God points to to defend his love for them is in his choosing of Jacob and rejecting of Esau. This is the main argument of this section. How have you loved us? God says, I chose Jacob and did not choose Esau. So we need to look at this, right? That might not immediately make sense. Why is that a defense of God's love for his covenant people? Well, that's our job this morning. It is to figure out what's going on here in these four verses. So, if you haven't done so, open your Bibles. Malachi chapter 1. We'll read this text together. If you don't know where Malachi is, find the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew. Go left one book, and you'll find yourself in Malachi. This is the last book of the Old Testament. So Malachi chapter 1, starting in verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord, But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste to his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we'll rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and The people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Let's pray as we begin. Father, we come to you now and ask for your help once again. And I trust, and I hope that we all trust, that you will demonstrate your faithfulness just as you have every other time we have been together. And Lord, we do not want to be among the people who indict you and bring an accusation because we have forgotten how you've demonstrated your love to us. And so Lord, this morning I pray that we would not read this as just a text from a historical book, but we would take this to heart that we would see with the eyes of our heart because your spirit has opened them now that we can see this demonstration of your love for your people. And that we now 2,500 years later can gain hope and confidence and assurance because of your covenant love for your people. So God, please come and do this work. And I pray that in all that is said and in all that is done this morning, may Jesus Christ be praised because he is worthy. And it's in his name that I pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, let's take a brief overview of this section before we start picking it apart a little bit. In this four verses, two through five, God makes this statement that he has always loved his people. This, the perfect tense of this verb means that it's a completed action. It's done, it's complete, but it has ongoing effect. So even the word itself that God uses to say, I have always loved you, communicates this aspect of God's covenant love, his unbreakable, unchangeable love that he demonstrates towards his people. But when he tells them this, his people respond with unbelief. Okay, Forgetfulness and unbelief kind of are a a perfect evil pair uh, in the people of God. And they don't believe what God has said. And they call him into question. How have you loved us? Now interestingly, I mean this is not good interesting, this is sobering interesting, that the same thing that's happening in verses 2 through 5 is what happened in Genesis 3. God states something and his creation goes, Hmm, really? Is Is that really what's going on? They doubt the word. And we just see this pattern repeat and repeat throughout all of redemptive history. God declares. And his people go, hmm. But God is patient. (laughs) Unlike you and I. And he actually interacts with them. And the answer that God gives to this rebuttal, how have you loved us? God gives an example from their past, from their history, something that should have been easily recognized and easily understood from the inception of the people of God. The illustration is of God choosing Jacob over Esau to inherit the blessing of Abraham. God had promised Abraham that he would be a blessing to all the nations of the world before he even had children. And so the covenant, the blessing that is passed down, as we're going to see in a moment, is of the inheritance of the blessing of God. But God says, I'm not going to go with the route that you think I'm going to go. I'm going to choose Jacob instead of Esau. This is how God chooses to illustrate his covenant love to his people. And that's why we need to spend more time looking at this. Because, like I said, it's probably not really obvious. When we read, I've loved you, how have you loved us? Well, I chose Jacob instead of Esau. I had peanut butter on my toast this morning. What does this mean? Okay, so we got to do a little bit of work and see what's going on. So let's begin. Look at verse two again in chapter one. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Now, there's a lot of different words for love in the Bible. This particular one is used many times in the Old Testament, primarily to refer to the covenant love that God has for his people or for an individual within the bounds of his people. This is not just like, I love my horse because it's dependable or I love my house. This is a covenant kind of uh, unchangeable love. And this word is used so that the people would understand this is not just some kind of human kind of love. God says, I have loved you. And I have demonstrated this love to you. But when they hear this, they respond with a question that betrays their own spiritual ignorance. It betrays their situation of having forgotten all these demonstrations of how God has shown them his love. How have you loved us? Now, what should have been obvious to the people, what should have been front and center in their mind is neglected. I mean, they could look not only in ancient history past, but they could look just years ago and see the demonstrations of God's love. But they don't. They forget. Or maybe they choose to forget. And just like a spoiled child who can never be satisfied, they keep asking for more. You ever been around a small kid or a big kid who... No matter what you give them, no matter what you do, no matter how you meet their needs, it's like, okay, what's next? Where is it? And that's what Israel is acting like. Like a bunch of spoiled kids sitting with piles of gifts all around them saying, aren't you going to do anything for me? God says, I've loved you. And they say, prove it. How have you loved us? Dangerous territory to be in with an omnipotent, all-powerful God. Now, there are many ways that God could have responded to this question, right? I mean, he could have listed any number of things in Israel's history. I'll just pick one. I I want you to get the significance of what he does say versus what he does not say in response to this question. God could have said, don't you remember that I chose you out of nothing? That I rescued you from Egypt? that I did all of these marvelous works. He could have said that in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. This is what God says through the prophet Moses to the people. He says this, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that he has brought you out of the mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. In Deuteronomy 7, God is reminding the people of what he did in choosing them freely. Freely. Out of all the people of the earth to be his treasured possession, what motivated him to rescue them from Egypt, to part the sea, to put the plagues on Pharaoh, to get them out of that situation was nothing that they had done. It was simply because they are his people. And because they are his people, God is predisposed to love them as a part of the terms of his covenant with them. He could have cited all of these things. There are demonstrations all around them of God's faithfulness and his love. And one of the things I was struck with this week, I was going back to the the early parts of Israel's history to see what are some of these demonstrations? What should they have known about God and about his works? And as I was reading from the Exodus and the times of the judges and even through the Davidic line of kings and all of these things, you know what struck me? Grace always precedes law in God's dealing with his people. Relationship comes before a requirement. So here's an example of what I'm talking about. It just hit me. When Moses goes down to Egypt, the people are in slavery. God's people have been there for 400 years under the yoke of slavery. God does not send Moses down to Egypt carrying the Ten Commandments. And saying to the people, if you will just do these things, then God will respond to your obedience and get you out of this pit. That's not what happens. God demonstrates his love and his mercy and his covenant-keeping faithfulness in removing the people from their situation, from their slavery, from their bondage. And only then does he say, now here is how I want you to live. That is so significant. It is so significant as we see the dealings of God with his people. It is not based on merit. God does not love his people because they've done something for him. That's called works. But God loves them because he loves them. Because he has chosen them. Because he is a gracious God and a patient God and a good God. Grace precedes law. And it's the same thing now. We're going to see this when we come to the end of the message. God does not look at you and say, if you can do the right things, I'll save you. He saves us in his mercy, in his grace, and then says, here's how you ought to live. Grace precedes law. And I was just hammered with that. Because of what I saw in the Old Testament primarily. Now, God's love for his people, as we're going to see in a few moments then, is not in any way dependent upon their obedience. Remember Moses in the Exodus? Remember all the dealings of God's people? It is not dependent. And this is what he's trying to communicate to the people in Malachi chapter 1. If the people had forgotten the the far back history... What God had done through Moses, through the patriarchs, through the kings, through the judges, like I said a minute ago, they could have just looked back 30 years. I mean, some of the people alive, when Malachi is giving this address, were alive in the Exodus. They were in Babylon, in captivity. And they should have been able to just turn around and say, oh man, not that long ago, God just did another amazing act of love by rescuing us from captivity. He brought the people back. He provided their needs so that he could build the temple and reestablish temple worship and gave them commandments and gave them instruction and gave them his spirit and said, I'm going to dwell with you. And they forgot this. So it wasn't just that they weren't good students of history. It was that they just weren't very aware of what God was doing around them because the evidence of his love, the evidence of his care was all around them. Just like it's all around us. We don't have to look very far. And yet they forgot, and they have the nerve to ask God, how have you loved us? Dangerous question. Well, God answers their question with a question of his own. Look again at verse 2. Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Although there were many visible evidences of God's love to the people, although there were many, many things that they could have pointed at and said, yes, this is how God has demonstrated, God doesn't use those. He doesn't use those as examples. Rather, he chooses to give the people a history lesson. This is part of this dialectic teaching method that I explained last week, that in this book of Malachi rather than the people saying, okay, how have you loved us? And God says, this is how I've loved you. Rather, he asks questions and he stacks question on top of question on top of question so that the correct answer comes from the people. God could have just said, this is how I've loved you. Close of the book. That would have been the shortest book in the Bible. But he doesn't. He draws out the information by asking these questions of his people. Is not Esau, Jacob's brother, God cites, and this is what we're getting into, God cites his unconditional election of his people as the primary demonstration of his covenant love for his people. His choosing of Jacob over Esau. So what we need to do now is determine what is meant by some of this language of love and hatred and choosing and rejection. And because we are dealing with covenantal terms, we are operating here in Malachi within the bounds of God's covenant with his people, and we talked about what that meant last week, then we can read the words loved and hated as chosen and not chosen. Now, I'm not lessening the effect of the words of God hating. We're going to get into that more in a minute. But in the terms of the covenant, when we read in Malachi one. Two and three, Jacob, I have loved, Esau, I have hated what God is saying is Jacob, I have chosen, Esau, I have rejected, and because God chose Jacob, don 't know where that came from, because God chose Jacob to be the one to inherit the blessings of the covenant, He loves him, and because he has rejected Esau as the one to receive the blessings of the covenant he demonstrates a just and holy hatred of him and his people, the Edomites. Now, for a bit of context, Jacob and Esau are twin boys. Esau's born first, he's the oldest, Jacob comes second. And they are born to Isaac and Rebekah, who are the children of Abraham. So you've heard Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, kind of the triad in the history of Israel. That's what's going on here. Abraham, the father of many nations, has a son, Isaac, who has a son, Jacob and Esau. So that's that's the lineage, that's what's going on here in this text. Esau was older. He was the firstborn. He was the one who should have received the covenant blessings and inheritance that were handed down generationally. That would have been normal, that would have been acceptable, that would have been assumed. That Esau is the one to inherit all the blessings of his father and grandfather. And it was almost unheard of for a blessing to skip the eldest and go to another member of the family. Unheard of. Not only culturally, but even in the nation of Israel. It was understood that, I know, I know, they're very early in their history here. But this was the understanding that the blessing, the inheritance passes to the firstborn. But God chooses Jacob over Esau and he does this intentionally. This is not some kind of situation where maybe God had his back turned when the twins come out and he goes, oh, I didn't see what happened. Did, did Esau come out first or Jacob? Oh, we'll pick Jacob. That's not what happened. Paul's going to clear this up for us here in a minute in Romans 9. But this is intentional on God's part to choose Jacob as the one to inherit the blessing over Esau, who would have been the expected inheritor of this blessing. And God does this on purpose so that it cannot be said, it cannot be said that his grace, his blessing. What he passes on to his people is in any way merited or deserved or assumed. You say, why did God do this? Because Esau was the human reaction to the passing down of the covenant. He was the one expected to receive all these blessings. Jacob was not. He was the younger But God's actions are not always in line with ours, are they? His way of thinking is not in line with ours. His ways are beyond finding out and he chooses Jacob on purpose. And what this tells us is that the the grace that is extended to the people of God, his choosing of his people is in no way conditional on anything. If Esau were the one to inherit the blessing, then it could have been pointed to and said, well, yeah, that makes sense. He, he earned it. He was in the right place at the right time. He's the firstborn. Now, Paul talks about this in Romans 4, verse 5, when he says, Now, for the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. What he means by that is to say, if I work 40 hours a week, I expect to be paid for 40 hours a week. When I get the paycheck at the end of the week, I don't say, oh, how generous and benevolent of you, oh, overlord. You have gifted me with this undeserved blessing. By the way, if anyone talks like that, we got to have a conversation, okay? that's, That's a little strange. But my point and Paul's point is that when you work for something, it's expected and it should be expected, but if you don't work for it, it is the grace of God. And that's the contrast. Esau is the human, natural, assumed inheritor. Jacob is not. So God does this intentionally so that his grace is magnified, yes, but also so that we understand the way that he operates, the modus operandus of God and what is normative in his economy. Now, Paul comments on this whole Jacob and Esau thing, and I think we get a little bit of enlightenment here. You can actually, please turn to Romans 9. I want you to read this with me, just so you know I'm not making this up. But God's choosing of Jacob over Esau is so crucial, not just in Israel's history and not just in Malachi's time, but for you and I. This is the illustration of what God is doing. Follow along, Romans 9, starting in verse 10. So Paul is defending and articulating the doctrine of election and he uses Jacob and Esau as the means to do this. Romans 9 verse 10. And not only so, but when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue... Not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, and here he quotes Malachi, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. You notice what Paul emphasizes in verse 11. When God chooses Jacob over Esau, the twins were not yet born. They had done nothing, good or bad. They had not tipped the scales or weighed them down on the other side. There was no record of them at this point. But God, in his wisdom, chooses Jacob. This is one of the things that we really need to understand about God and his works and his ways, that God does what he does so that his purpose, his plan, his counsel, his will stands God is not concerned with being exonerated in the court of human opinion. You and I wouldn't have done this. We wouldn't do things backwards just for the fun of it. You go with the system. You do what gets done. You go with the eldest as the inheritance. Not so with God. And he does this so that his will, that's what Paul's saying, all of this is so that the purpose of God might stand. And we could go back to all sorts of texts in Isaiah and in the minor prophets elsewhere to see that the purpose of God will always be accomplished. And this is just one illustration. This is one demonstration of this. His primary concern is upholding His will, His covenant, His purposes in His dealings with His people. This is what Paul meant in Ephesians 1 when he says that God works all things according to the counsel of His will. Now does these doings of God do these events look weird to us does it seem strange that God would operate this way yes but we're not God we don't know what he knows we don't see what he sees what right do we have to say to God what are you doing God does what he does so that his purposes are upheld And as we consider this account of Jacob and Esau, we see that God doesn't grade on a curve. He's not waiting to see what happens and then applying things in response to what goes on. If that had been the case, Esau's in, right? He had everything going for him. He was the firstborn. He was by trait of being the firstborn, the one who should have done it. And even as they grow up, we see that he is good at things that Jacob is not good at. In fact, Jacob is a deceiver. That's what his name means. Which reminds me, I need to have a conversation with my parents about why they named me that. But that's a whole other sermon. But Jacob doesn't deserve the grace of God. He doesn't act in such a way to be worthy of that. God didn't look ahead down the corridors of time and see Jacob doing all these good things and go, okay, because he did that, then I'll choose him here. Before they were born or had done anything good or bad, God says, this is my purpose, this is how I'm doing it, and this will stand, and it does. (laughs) It does. What an encouragement to us. God's choosing is based solely on the counsel of his will. And that's a huge comfort for us, and we'll see why that is in a moment. Now, some people read this text in Malachi, or it's citation in Romans 9, and get a little bit uptight because it talks about God hating. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. What's going on with that? That sounds really harsh. And for many people, They don't have a category for God doing anything but loving. Right? From the time we are young, we are taught, rightly, I would add, that God is love. That he loves us. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Those are precious and true realities. But remember what we are dealing with here. We are dealing with the terms of a covenant. Which means... There are two sides to this coin, yes? There are two aspects to a covenant. There is blessing for obedience, and there is punishment for disobedience. When God made this covenant with Abraham, and this is what we're dealing with, the Abrahamic covenant, the the passing of the blessing down and the inheritance to Abraham's descendants, when God makes this covenant, here's what he says, Genesis 12, you can just write this down and check it out later. Genesis 12, 2. God says to Abram, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's the covenant. Blessing for obedience, curse, punishment for disobedience. And as we consider the terms of this covenant. Then we read in Malachi 1 or, or, or Romans chapter 9, we see that God's hatred of Esau and his people, his rejection of Esau as the continuation of the covenant is every bit a demonstration of God's covenant-keeping faithfulness as is his love for Israel. They are two sides of the same coin. It's not as if God arbitrarily for no reason chose to just hate someone. That's not how God acts. He acts in keeping with the terms of his covenant because he is a God of faithfulness. And for the record, you want both of these things to be true. You do not want a God who is oblivious to or does not care about sin and wickedness. You do not want a God who is able to deal with sin but chooses not to. See, we have no problem with God operating in terms of his love, do we? It's great when we see him demonstrate his covenant faithfulness and love to his people. But what about the other side of the covenant? What about God's promise to destroy sin? What about his promise to do what is right? What about his promise to avenge his people? We need both of these things to be true. And I know it's uncomfortable. I know that we don't often have right categories for this in our minds. But submit yourselves to the word of God and see that this is justice. Esau is no innocent bystander here. (laughs) He's not just sitting here going, oh, I I love you, God, and I want to serve you, and I want to do the right thing. And and mean old God says, no way, I'm going to hate you instead. This is not what's going on. This is covenant relationship. We'll get into that in just a second. Esau is this hard man. Genesis 25 tells us he despised his birthright. He looked with contempt on the things of God. And God acts in faithfulness to his covenant. Now, we read about this reunion of sorts in Genesis 33, when Jacob and Esau come back together. But throughout all of redemptive history, the people of Esau, who are called the Edomites, are referred to as the wicked. Those who oppress and oppose the people of God. They are in this ages-long conflict. And as we see this contrast in Malachi 1, we recognize this has been going on since the beginning. With the righteousness of God's people and the wickedness of his enemy and the way that God deals with both of these things. This is contrast language is what we're dealing with in Malachi. God's love for his people is an eternal, unchangeable love. And so notice the similarity. And I'm pointing this out because I want you to see, again, this, this two sides of the coin kind of a thing. So his love is eternal, his love is unchanging, so is the other aspects of his covenant keeping. Look at verse 4. God says, they may build, now they are referring to Edom, to the descendants of Esau. They may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country. And the people with whom the Lord is angry, how long? Forever. Same kind of thing. What happens on this side, happens on this side. This is covenant-keeping faithfulness of God. Now in verse 5, God promises the people that they will see the destruction, this downfall of Edom with their own eyes. And this happens. Maybe not this generation That Malachi is preaching to, but in subsequent years, the people of Edom are conquered and forced to relocate. So around 500 or 450 BC, now remember, time's moving backwards as far as the numbers go, right? BC goes from greater, it's leading up to Christ, so numbers are getting smaller as we come to the cross. So in about 450 BC, an Arab army comes and wipes out Edom. Wipes out the people. It literally destroys their land and makes it a wasteland. Everything God has promised. And they force the people of Edom to migrate and to settle in a totally new place. And the land is called Edumia. And this is just to the south of Judea. Just underneath them slightly. So, the fact that God is faithful to his word and the people go through exactly what he says they're going to go through, they're conquered, their land is destroyed, and they are forced now to be exiles, is significant for two main reasons. One, it shows us the faithfulness of God. Two, it has great significance when we come to the time of Christ. Here's what I'm talking about. Fast forward about 400 years to the year 37 B.C. So this is really close to the coming of Jesus. He's not here yet, about 30 years prior And Rome has conquered everything, basically, right? They have had their conquest go throughout the land, and they own and rule all of the surrounding areas. And as was common that the Roman government would put up governors, they would put uh, leaders in place to govern these districts or these areas of their conquest. And so in Judea, they raise up a certain man to reign over the nation in 37 B.C., and this guy's name is... Herod the Great. Sound familiar? Now Herod happens to be an Edomian. He's an Edomite. He's a descendant of Esau. Hmm. Well that's interesting. Why is that interesting? Because look what happens. When Herod the Great, ruling over the nation of Israel and Judea, under this captivity again, he hears... We read about this in Matthew chapter 2, that there is one born king of the Jews and he loses his mind. And he overreacts. And he has all the baby boys killed because as an Edomian, as an Edomite, he understands this tension between the people of God and the people of Esau. So it's not just that he's a wicked man doing what wicked men do, that's true. But there's an added element that he is continuing as it were, this conflict between the people of God who are chosen by God and loved by God and Esau, who is rejected by God. So Herod, an Edomite, a descendant of Esau, does what he can to stop the rise of this Jewish king because he knows. He knows the history. He knows where he came from. And he knows who he is. But, just like Jacob, Jesus was chosen. And like Esau, Herod was not. And God's purpose of election stands. It's all throughout the Bible. This conflict. And it'll eventually be resolved. But for now, this is what we deal with. Now, as we come to a close, let's let's transpose this now onto our day. Onto the age that we live in. Because I know I make a big deal out of the forgetfulness of the Israelite people, about the people of God. But they're not the only ones who struggle with this, are they? (laughs) You and I tend to forget what God has done regularly. And these are the times when we forget God's law, when we forget his works, when we forget all of the demonstrations of His love and kindness that He has shown to us, that we get in these foul moods and we get in these positions where we go, (laughs) okay, I read in the Bible that God so loved the world that He gave His Son. Well, I don't feel very loved. How have you loved me? We end up asking the same exact question. Now, whether this be because of suffering, pain, loss, your own sin, your circumstances, we regularly find ourselves in positions of questioning God. So how would you answer the question? How would you answer somebody who says, how has God loved me? Well, the answer for us today is exactly the same as the answer was in 500 B.C. We look back to a historical event to solidify in our minds this demonstration of God's love. And not only that, we have have two events to look back on. We look back on God's free and unconditional election of his people, his choosing of his people, and we look back on the cross of Christ. This ties in so well to what Eric just said a few moments ago. The demonstration of God's love is clearly seen at the cross. This is what Paul meant in Romans 5, 8, when he says, God demonstrates Shows forth in a public way his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I understand the situations that cause us to question, God, what are you doing? I don't feel very loved right now. I'm unsure of your purposes for me. And I want to encourage you, look back. Look back. Yes, there are all these external things that I'm sure you could point to. How God has carried you. How he has provided for you. How he has given you what you've needed in the moment. All of these are external and they are meant to encourage us. But there is something deeper than the external things that reminds us of the love of God. And it is his unconditional, free, sovereign choosing of his people. And the demonstration of that is magnified at the cross. And so I want to read one passage in closing and I think this passage ties all of these things together. God's choosing, Christ's atonement, the love of God that is demonstrated in all of these things is perfectly combined in this first section of Ephesians chapter 1. So listen for all of those themes and we'll close with this. Ephesians 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Every question that we might ask, every doubt that we might have is answered in the cross of Jesus. And this is one of the reasons that we come to the table every week. Because we forget. And when I say, And when I quote Jesus and say, do this in remembrance of me, there is so much tied up in that little phrase. So brothers and sisters, if you feel like God is far from you, if you are unsure of his purpose, look to the cross. It's there that you find this perfect combination of his love, his justice, his mercy, and his grace. Let's pray. Father, this is strange for us. Your word is right when it says your ways are beyond finding out. and We submit, Lord, that we do not fully understand your ways. There are many things that we would probably do differently. There are many roads that we would not have walked down. And yet you never make a mistake. You never do wrong. You never falter. So I ask, Lord, for the grace to trust you. I pray that as we encounter difficult things in your word, as we have questions, that you would give us the understanding by your Holy Spirit to see that you always do right. That you are perfect in all your ways. There is no... Charge that can be brought against you for wrongdoing. And I pray that we would humble ourselves under your word, Lord. I praise you for the cross of Christ. And I praise you for the demonstration of your righteousness that, according to the terms of your covenant, you did not ignore sin. You didn't act like it was a minor thing, but you dealt with it in Christ. You punished sin and wickedness in Him. So that we can stand before you clean. What a God. And what a plan. So Father, push this into our hearts. Help us to understand your love for us. And the many, many ways that you show us your love. Help us to leave here encouraged that you love us. Because of Christ. And we thank you.